Well, welcome everybody. My name is Kyle. If you don't know who I am, I want to welcome all of you uh, in person here to Uplift. And if you are listening on our podcast, Anchor Point, I'm glad that you're here. We are in a series here called Questioning Jesus. This is the third week of our series where we are examining some of the questions that Jesus asked, and more specifically, some of the questions that he answered. And the third question of our series is probably the best known question that Jesus ever answered. And you know it. The question is, who is my neighbor? So let's read the text where we find this question right out of the gate. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. That's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Here we go. Verse 25 And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer, What's written in the law? Have you read it? How do you read it? Verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to the lawyer, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, but the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, you know this story, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, When he saw the victim, the priest passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, the victim, the man on the road, the Levite passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the victim, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him, the Samaritan went to the victim, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to the inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Verse 36, Jesus ends this story with this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is an uber familiar story. You probably could have quoted it. It's an uber familiar parable. In the 19th century, it was used by abolitionists to justify the ending of slavery. In the mid-20th century, Martin Luther King Jr. used this parable to teach the necessity of compassion toward people of different backgrounds. And our own president, one of our own presidents, George W. Bush, used this parable to justify that America would not, quote, pass by on the side of the road when faced with the wounds of people around the world. This is the same story, right? The same story, three applications. All of them, though, had one thing in common. They were all prescriptions for behavior. Are are all of these applications correct? You bet. But is a, and this is a big one, is a prescription for moral, good, ethical behavior the only point 
of this story, of the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Not by a long shot. So let's just take a look at the setting of this question. It was asked by a lawyer. It was asked by a scribe as a sequel to another question. The lawyer initially asked Jesus just a few verses earlier what he, the lawyer, should do to inherit eternal life. And the way he phrased that question meant that he was looking for a calculable answer, an objective answer, something tangible, a two plus two equals four kind of answer. Jesus' answer to this very first question was a counter question. We've already seen that here in our series as to whether, I like this, to whether the lawyer had actually even read the law. Of course, the lawyer had read it, and he summed the law up by using what we know of as two famous passages which equated loving God and loving neighbor with the same kind of love and the same kind of intensity. And though Jesus agreed with the lawyer's assessment that the lawyer had Jesus' attention, and he had to ask another question, which is the question we're talking about. Who is, who is my neighbor? This is all from Leviticus chapter 19, by the way. The legal requirement of the law from Leviticus 19 actually offered a very clear definition as to who a neighbor was once upon a time. A neighbor was a fellow Israelite and a resident alien. But the era in which Jesus lived and the era in which this question was asked made this law rather ambiguous. Lots of migrations and forced movements across the Roman Empire had made this issue incredibly debatable. Social and cultural norms had been completely fractured, and honestly, the legal requirement of Leviticus 19 actually seemed to scholars of the day rather outdated. So the question here is not just about the identity of the neighbor, but also the identity of those who are not neighbors. In other words, this is a big one, the lawyer asked, where he should draw the line? How far should love really reach. Jesus considered this a worthy question to answer, and he does. So here for the next couple of minutes, we're going to briefly state what we know about this story, and we're going to leave out what we don't know. We're not going to make any assumptions here about this story, because if we did so, we would just kind of rob the the parable of its ability to make us think anyway. So here we go. These are just the facts. We know, first of all, that the man who was beaten was anonymous. He's not given an ethnic label. And that's actually pretty important, especially in light of the lawyer's question about the boundaries of camaraderie and friendship. This anonymous man, we know, was beaten and robbed, and he was stripped of his clothing, and he was left on the side of the road. The wounds from chapter 10, verse 34, actually imply that he fought back, and his lack of clothing made him look like a corpse. Now, the priest and the Levite passed the victim in succession without any motivation. We're not given a reason why this happened. There are several assumptions as to why they would do that, but those assumptions really don't matter, and indicating those would only force us to overly dissect this story anyway. The bottom line is they didn't do anything. The crowd, though, the crowd who was listening to this question, and most especially the lawyer, 
This is kind of interesting. They wouldn't have had any difficulty with the behavior of the priest and the Levite. Priests and Levites actually shared high status in the community of God's people because of their birthright. Not offering assistance to the victim may have raised a a few eyebrows, but not many because these two guys, they were sentinels of their faith. If they made this decision, then it was for a good reason, according to the crowd and the lawyer. Maybe they thought the victim was dead. Maybe not. Doesn't matter. If they both decided to do the same thing, then God must approve, right? That's how the crowd thought. Then we get to the third guy. The third passing man is a Samaritan, and he's actually a foil to the two more respected characters. And he's a foil for a few reasons. One, you probably know some of this, but I'm going to reiterate this. Once Samaritans were actually once of the same ethnicity as Judeans. But centuries of forced repatriations by the Assyrians and the Greeks produced heirs of this region that by the time of Jesus' day were actually mostly Gentile, which meant they were unclean. Number two, the Samaritans also actually followed the same law as the Judeans, but they had some squirrely interpretations. But they also had their own temple, and they debated and defended the authenticity of this temple and public. And number three, about 15 years or so before Jesus answered this question, Samaritans actually snuck into Jerusalem during a religious feast and scattered human bones on the temple complex. And actually, just a chapter before this, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus' own apostles, the brothers James and John, requested the use of lightning to destroy the Samaritan villages that refused to host Jesus and his entourage. In other words, the Samaritan's presence in this story, it was meant to provoke. Jesus used him as a provocation, maybe even to make some folks angry. But we know this, it was this Samaritan who stopped to help the victim. And he cared for the victim with his own resources. And he stopped, by the way, in the very place that the victim was assaulted and attacked, which meant that he put his own life at risk. And then the great twist ending to this story, to this answer of this question, is that Jesus actually changed the definition of neighbor from someone who received benevolence to someone who showed benevolence. The lawyer wanted to know to whom he should and could show compassion within the law. But Jesus' answer actually defined neighbor as anyone who showed compassion without compunction. And those are just the facts. That's the story. Let me tell you a little story of, that happened to me. Several years ago, I was on a routine commute not a, not a, just a, just a regular, I was on a regular drive from my house to a a familiar place and I was on my way and at a busy and perilous intersection, my truck, my wonderful 1996 white Chevrolet extended cab pickup that is no longer with us, broke down. All right. So I took my truck and I pushed my truck to the median. And this was 
I didn't have roadside assistance, so I had a cell phone, but I, but I was in a familiar area, and there was a good chance I was going to know the people who were passing, so I stopped after I pushed my truck on the median, turned around to see if I saw someone passing that could help, and lo and behold, this is a true story, a local preacher is driving the same way that I was coming. I knew him. I saw his car, I knew him, and I thought for sure he would stop. I mean, I was hard to miss. Big white truck, broken down and half dead on the side of the road. But the preacher, you know it, did not stop. I just watched him drive by. I'll never forget how he looked as he drove right past me. He was hunched over his steering wheel. He didn't even look at me. He was determined to get to wherever he was going as quickly as possible. And kid you not, the only thing I thought there at that intersection was this. Am I in a parable? It's exactly what it felt like. So I ended up calling a local handyman. I don't know if I'd call him a friend. He was a little sketchy, but he was the only guy that I knew that could possibly tow me anywhere. And I called him, and he showed up within minutes of my phone call and towed my lovely white pickup to the local shop. This is the guy that I didn't even expect would answer my phone call. And if I'm going to be real honest here, probably the guy really did not want to show up. But he was the one that answered, and he's the one that showed up without question And I promise you the whole time I thought about Luke chapter 10. It was amazing. It was one of these unbelievable moments. By the way, you're the first people that's ever heard this story. Absolutely true. So congratulations. What do we do with this, uh, the answer to this question, by the way? What do we do with this parable? The answer to this lawyer's question, this story as answer. What do we do with this? What do we do with a story that we've really, by default, reduced to really nothing more than a prescription for behavior. I mean, that's what we use the Good Samaritan for. It's what we call people that do good deeds. Certainly, Jesus meant it for more than that. Because the characters in this story, they're not the fulcrum of this story, nor is the questioner. The fulcrum of this story is actually the response of the Samaritan, the compassion that he felt. And I really think it's a compassion that's under attack today. It's under assault. Compassion, it's being reshaped and reformed and re-sculpted and redefined to fit powerful and unholy agendas. It's a questionable compassion. It's a revisionist compassion. Revisionist compassion is a compassion, you've recognized it, that maximizes emotion at the expense of restorative action, refusing to see that compassion and change actually go hand in hand. Revisionist compassion creates slogans like love wins to defend lifestyles that don't bring glory to the Father, not seeing that love actually does win, but not in the way that the slogan promises. Revisionist compassion has become the engine of wayward teachings that deconstruct the gospel, subtracting Jesus' death as a ransom for many while highlighting his defense of the marginalized, refusing to see that Jesus defended the marginalized for the glory of God. 
and not even for the glory of himself, and not even for the glory of the marginalized. Revisionist compassion makes this a parallel universe story of a Samaritan whose only ability is to notice this half-dead man as a victim of intolerance instead of evil. It's this skewed version of compassion. You've seen this, that incredibly actually ignores the gospel truth that sin is real and instead highlights that very sin as creative and individual expression. It's a skewed version of compassion that finds the robbers and the bandits and the priest and the Levite and gives them shelter because they were just misunderstood and they were just mistreated and they were forced into lives of brutalization and and ignorance. They were according to revisionist compassion. They're the real victims here. Never mind that their actions at their very core were evil and sinful. Revisionist compassion is a compassion without sanctification, without the transformation mentioned by Paul, who, by the way, was a good friend and traveling companion of the writer of this gospel of Luke. Listen to his words from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord are being, here's the word, are being transformed, changed into the same image of the glory of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. If we allowed this revisionist compassion to have the final word here, we would have to rename this story as the parable of the tragic Samaritan. Because a Samaritan who only notices and labels and screams and posts doesn't do any good for the half-dead victim. Compassion as an emotion, cannot be the final word. In fact, it's not. The lawyer's answer to Jesus' question of who acted like a neighbor was, get this, was literally in the Greek language, the one who, and this is the actual phrase, the one who did mercy. Did mercy. Our English translations all say it's the one who showed mercy, and there's a reason for that. English-speaking people don't think of mercy as something that we do. It's something that we show. But Jesus thought of it that way because mercy and compassion is something done because of what you feel. I mentioned earlier that the fulcrum of this answer, of this parable, is not the character's It's not even the questioner. It was the response of the Samaritan. It was the compassion he felt. In fact, oh, this is so cool. The word for compassion, the actual Greek word in the Greek translation of this parable found in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, in the Greek text of this story, I want to make sure you know this, is actually preceded by 68 Greek words and followed by 67 Greek words. In other words, it was at the exact midpoint of this entire story. And this word for compassion is one of my favorite words in the entire New Testament because it doesn't just describe an emotion. It describes what the emotion does to the one who feels it. The literal translation of this word 
is, and you gotta, you gotta check this out. It's to be moved in your bowels. And I said that right. Yes, it's your bowels, your insides. In fact, the Greek word is where we get our English word for spleen. The plight of the victim caused the Samaritan physical pain. It made him sick at his stomach to see someone in such a state. Everything else in the world faded at that moment. The Samaritan's only focus was the restoration of the victim. In fact, his physical pain would only be relieved once the victim was healed. You want to know why this matters and why I'm spending so much time on this? Well, here's why. This word for compassion in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, is only used three times in this entire gospel. It's used here. This is the middle one in Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But the first time it's used in the gospel of Luke is in the first part of Luke chapter 7 to describe what Jesus felt when he saw a widow mourning the death of her only son. You know what Jesus did when he felt this compassion? He resurrected her son. That's the first time. Second time is in Luke 10, 33. And the third time is actually in Luke chapter 15. And it's used to describe the father's emotion at the return of his son in the parable of the prodigal. And you know what the father did when he, when he felt this compassion? He took off running. He took off running for his boy. He wrapped him in his arms and he kissed him and he welcomed him home. So really, of these instances, of these three instances, the Samaritan here is in exceptionally good company. So the question for us here, really, is what does this mean for us? How do we do mercy? How do we let this emotion change us and affect us? Well, there's really only one simple way. It's a way of the Samaritan. It's to abandon our insulation. We've grown incredibly accustomed, I'm guilty of this, to scheduled lives that really keep victims at arm's length. We've insulated ourselves really well against any hint of any kind of emotional response. And, you know, really, it probably frightens us. It frightens me. Our world, our data, it doesn't run on emotion. Emotions are unfamiliar to us. We've evolved to fit our culture really well. And we're not really sure how to navigate anything any different. But there are people. There are people here in Fort Bend County. There are people within the walls of this church who are yearning for the God glorifying compassion of Jesus felt by you, felt by me. Victims are waiting for us to do mercy. Tonight's really a call for us to abandon our insulation, to let godly compassion hurt us, to let it spur us, to let it move us to feel exactly what Jesus felt. Let's pray together. Father, we have experienced your compassion. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. We are asking that 
right now, you restore to us the joy of our salvation. Let that restoration move us to compassion once again. Let us reclaim compassion as your emotion and not something cheap and fleeting. Give us the power to show people what this really looks like. And in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.